Hey there, I'm David Kern. And I'm Tim McIntosh. And you are listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader, on which we are discussing George Bernard Shaw's Pygmalion, a play. We talked about the play itself last week. This week, we answer your questions. Sadly, Heidi is not here because she is sick, and we'll we'll have to uh, push on without her. She has lots of great things to say about about this play, so I'm I'm a little sad about that. But she needs to rest right now, taking those fluids. So we're giving her a break. Uh, we do have a special guest joining us again. Jesse Turpin is back, revisiting her role as Liza Doolittle later on in the episode. Jesse, thanks for being here. Oh, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Jesse, this is what happens when you do something well, you get asked to do it again. <laughs> if you do it well for 40 hours a week, they'll ask you to do it for 80. Well, I appreciate yeah. that. It's a standard though. <laughs> so if I don't get asked next time, it means I did a really terrible job. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, the great thing is, I mean, this is the, this is the plays after this week, the play, the episodes are over. So you know, we, we won't have to find yeah. out. <laughs> at least until we do our next play. Are you good at uh, other accents too, or primarily just like uh, Cockney? I try to do British. Like, I don't know any other accent. I know, like, in, in Britain, like England, there's various accents, you know, sure. Yorkshire, et cetera, but uh, Cockney and the general one, I guess. Yeah. Is yeah. The, only ones I know. the, like, BBC version. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> so uh, we are here to answer questions, as I said. And let's just dig right in because we have a little bit of a time crunch here. We got about an hour to do this episode, and we do want to share a scene with you at the end. We want to uh, do a, you know, what I'm calling a table reading. It, it's like acting, but we're not really moving, and you can't see us, so it's voice acting. But even that, I don't know. I, I don't know if it's it was Jesse and Tim are acting. I'm just reading, so it's better to just call it a table read to just be all above board and people's expectations set in the right place. <laughs> um, but let's start here. Tim, I want to ask you this one in particular. Sarah asked this and she says, why write a play if you write stage directions like that and add the conclusion where the actress could potentially pantomime it, but where both instances would fit best in a novel? So why why does he write a play here with this one? Wait, is the question why... Can I hear the question again? Yeah. Why write a play as opposed to a novel, she's saying, if you write stage directions the way George Bernard Shaw does, and then you also add a conclusion at the end that explains everything. Oh, but in both oh, instances, oh. they would just those would fit best in a novel, yet he decides to write a play. Is it just that George Bernard Shaw writes plays? I think it's just because George Bernard Shaw writes plays. Yeah. And he's a great playwright. And yeah, that would be my answer. I mean, I, I maybe I'm reading into the question, the frustration that I have with the conclusion, that long belabored conclusion about like the future of Eliza and Pickering. And, you know, <laughs> it's like, what are we talking about here? This None of this appears on the stage. No one but the director and maybe the actors get this. It's kind of, it's just peculiar. And plus the stage directions are so laborious, but in the stage directions are just a product of the time. And I think the afterward is a product of, George Bernard Shaw <laughs> doing George Bernard Shaw. As in, he was extremely particular because I think the reason that he did the ending was because everyone else wanted to interpret it completely differently. And so I think being George Bernard Shaw, he was so finicky. So that I did some like reading on various articles and journal um, pieces. And I think what I could understand from George Bernard Shaw is he was... Um, maybe type A in a sense that he, when he directed, you know, with what's the, the bomb garden tree or whatever, like the actor and then Mrs. Patrick Campbell, they all three of them did the London premiere of Pygmalion and all three of them are rather like big names. And I think they all had mm. a different idea of how things wanted to go, but he was so adamant and very particular. So there's a, um, I, have, I don't know if you've seen the Pygmalion script that's online but they have one of his pictures where he's done like his stage directions and he added some in there because he wanted everything to be particular like eliza had to go to the back of the stage eliza had to turn here but i think he was just so upset about the or finicky about the ending and the way it wanted to be because he he did it for i think moral reasons instead of so he's like it had to be this way they couldn't end up married or whatever instead of aesthetic you were right yeah, it was overdone, but 
it was interesting. But he wanted to protect the play. He did. He wanted to protect the play. Yeah. You know what? And I totally get that. I, I absolutely get that. And I think especially for this play, it's such a, how do you say it? The ending could tip in either way that could, I think, ruin the thesis of the play. And I maintain that the thesis of the play is about class. It's a class conflict. But if you mm-hmm. kind of like resolve it really neatly with a, with a happy ending and the prospect of romance between them, then you're kind of neutering the play in a way. And so I, I, I'm complaining about George Bernard Shaw, but I also recognize that he's trying to, he's trying to protect the point that he's trying to make. And I respect that. Mm-hmm. So there's a couple other questions about this this postscript, and I want to just raise them or, or allow these questioners to raise them to continue this conversation. Jill says, well, she says, what do you make of the long postscript at the end of Act 5? And more specifically, would it be, be read by someone at a performance or maybe included in program notes? So there's that question. She has another part of it that I want to come back to in a second. But then... Um, Amy then says, as a director, what would you do with the postscripts? So, Tim, how do you feel about that as a director, as an actor? Like, what would you do with that if you were staging it? And then I'll go to Jill's, the second part of Jill's question. I, I think that there's a habit in programs of having a director's note early in the program. And the director's note, I think, includes things like here's what to look for, or here's why I fell in love with this play, or this is what the experience of directing this play would be like. I think with a play like this, if I was directing it, I'd be very tempted to say, um, hey, audience, keep your eye on the thing. And the thing is the class conflict. And we're going to all want a romantic, happy ending at the end. And maybe we have a suggestion of that. But I think that would take our eyes off of Shaw, what Shaw is driving at. Mm. So I might do that, which in a way is a little bit contrary to kind of my convictions as a director or a writer, which is like you have to let the play stand on its own, right? Mm -hmm. But I think this play is, um, I think to let Shaw speak which is in a lot of ways like a first principle of close reads is like, let the author speak. Even we don't mm-hmm. like it, like we can raise our concerns about what the mm-hmm. author is saying. We might disagree, but we have to let the author speak according to the author's own lights and, and what mm-hmm. their purposes are. And so yeah. I think as a director, I would say we need to listen to Shaw, agree or disagree with him, but we need to listen to the point that he's trying to make here and don't let the end of this play turn it into something that it's not something that's a little bit more palatable to us. How does he end up making the point that he's trying to make without it being too didactic, even with his postscript? Like the postscript could turn the play into a commentary on class consciousness or class dynamics. And it could be very pedantic and very, you know, just sort of, uh, aggressive but he manages to i mean the play is still being put on people are still loving it. it's been made into right. movies we're still reading it so obviously that is not that he didn't do that how how do you think he avoids doing that and, and jesse if you have thoughts on this too please jump in yeah i mean i think the way that ending is kind of ambiguous is um very intentional on his part because he want he wants the audience i mean throughout the whole play the audience is being um asked to be involved in different ways and their expectations are raised and then changed. And at the end, there's not a defined like resolution. And so the audience has to then reflect upon, okay, what has happened? What is going to happen? And I think without, if you tied it up in a neat little bow, like, oh, they just end up getting married. Hmm. Then it's easy to watch and be like, yeah, that was great. We got our Cinderella story. Then they leave and it's, you know, there's no reflection. And I think, especially like Tim was saying, it's a, it's a play about social issues of that time and Shaw wanted to bring you to attention these the class issues um maybe on a smaller scale the gender issues um and I think you couldn't do that with wrapping it up so neatly 
I, Jesse, I wonder if you agree with with this. I think Shaw would say that if two people or four people attend this play, success for him would be those two or four people walking out on the street, catching a cab or whatever, and disagreeing about whether or not Eliza and Higgins could have gotten married to some degree. Like, I think that like his goal would be something like, I want people debating whether or not this relationship has any sort of future. Um, Oh, I don't know. I mean, I think that could be one of the questions. I think his, I guess the way I saw the play was the audience would leave the theater just the same way as the very beginning of the play, you have the audience of a show coming out, being on the street, mixed together classes, and they see them. So imagine like the very beginning, you have the audience watching Pygmalion, which begins with an audience on stage coming out of a theater and mm. you know, the class is kind of mixing as everyone's looking for cabs and things. And then the audience sees themselves on stage and perhaps thinks about, oh, I will be doing the same thing for my mm. London West End theater in three hours. And then when they leave, they're like, who am I going to see? Where's the Eliza's on the street? Mm-hmm. You know? And I think when they leave, they that's can good. see themselves being a part of the play. And I think perhaps that's the reflection then that Shaw was going for as in, what are we going to see? Like, who are we going to see? You know, are we going to, I don't know. I think that it's, was perhaps more of a. So they sure walk out of the street and they would see someone who was in Eliza's position in the play. Yeah. And maybe they see that person in a different light. Cause they I just kind so. of like traveled forward, you know, three years yeah. with Eliza and Oh my gosh, look at what a different person she is. This person who is selling flowers in the street as I try to catch a cab is a different kind of person than I think I would have hmm. seen her as. Mm-hmm. They become more human. Play. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. I, I, yeah, I think that's a better answer than the one that I gave. I, do I mean, think I think so. it's different. I think that's the same. Obviously that question is the reason we have, you know, the different interpretations of Pygmalion, the ending. Everybody yeah. wants to see them together. So yeah. I think that's the, it has become, I think the main focus about what's the purpose of Pygmalion. You know, is it a real mm. romance? Is it a myth <laughs> or fairy tale? You know? Yeah. I, th- I think that we didn't talk last week about the idea that, when you leave the theater, you are in the same position that the mm-hmm. characters are when the play begins. We were, they were walking out of a theater. So I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, Jesse, come and prepared, Tim. Came ready to done. roll. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> let's. Okay, so here's a question from the mysteriously named S uh, here in the in the comment thread on Substack. We were talking about the idea of the didacticism of the work. And I use that word because S, S specifically said, are you finding this work didactic? But then this person, she, I believe, says, quotes Shaw, who said this. And again, this is, this is quoting George Bernard Shaw, not the questioner. Pygmalion is so intensely and deliberately didactic, and its subject is esteemed so dry that I delight in throwing it at the heads of the wiseacres who repeat the parrot cry that art should never be didactic. It goes to prove my contention that art should never be anything else. End quote. S now says, what do you think of this general claim for didacticism in art? And Tim, as a uh, George Bernard Shaw uh, knower, knowledge, you're someone who knows about George <laughs> Bernard Shaw. <laughs> what do you, what do you, what, does this just make a lot of sense for you? Where does the quote come from? She she doesn't put it in here. Well, she doesn't I cite the source. I think it's from the intro because that sounds really oh, familiar. Oh, oh. Okay, but I could be wrong. Yeah, you know what? It's that might be somebody... it. Now that you say that, but it's it's uh, <laughs> reputed to be from Shaw. <laughs> so, I Heidi has duty and desire, right? Mm-hmm. These are kind of like these two ways of interpreting literature. Mm-hmm. I think there's two ways of interpreting how artists perceive their task. And I think the two ways are, I am here to teach and I do it with great skill using whatever, novels, using theater and actors. And the other way of seeing one's task as an artist is not, 
I teach, but I show. So I would put, um, oh gosh, I would put checkoff in the category of I don't teach, I show. I would put Shakespeare in the category I don't teach, but I show. And I would put Shaw in the other category, I teach. And of course he has to show also, but he's there to teach. And I think Tolstoy belongs in that camp also. I think Tolstoy wants us to arrive at a conclusion and to change the way that we see the world. And mm -hmm. I and I think both of those ways of doing art, I think, have absolutely fantastic practitioners. I think readers sometimes will show up with a kind of expectation. Art is supposed to teach. Art is supposed to just show. And I think for me, part of kind of like maturing as a reader is letting an artist do the thing that he or she has decided is the object of her, is the point of her art. If it's hmm. teach, well, if she does it well, then I need to be able to get with that. And if she just shows, but she shows well, then I need to be able to get with that. Hmm. Does that make sense? What hmm. I'm saying that like, through these kind of two broad categories so of... You're, you're saying you have to let the artist do what it's doing? What it wants to do? Yeah. Yeah. And, so and, can you... Does that mean you have to judge them on different scales? Or assess yes, them or whatever absolutely. word you want to use? Absolutely. So then... Yeah, the, 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 the work of art creates the rules by which it's assessed. So then would you say that it comes down to authorial intent? Yeah. Yeah. But how can you know that? If the, and, you know, Shaw tells us, well, I'm being didactic here. And it's in the preface, by the way. It's in the penultimate graph of, the, the, of his preface to this play. Um, that that quote came from that we just read. So unless if the I mean if the author doesn't tell you this is the lesson I'm trying to teach, then how do you go about assessing them according to this metric? Well, I think if it's well done, the play in this case Pygmalion says I'm a didactic work, and I think this play says I'm a didactic work. I think it's I think it's really clear on that point. Is it good for its didacticism or despite its didacticism? Gosh, I think I'm going to go out and say, oh, man, it's hard. Jesse, what do you, do you have a strong opinion on this, I was this, waiting Jesse? for that. I was waiting for the puns. To, I don't know. Does there need to be an opinion? Can it be good art and be didactic? I think so. I don't know why it has to be one or the other, like either or. So well, I, I guess what I'm asking, though, when I say is it good for its didacticism or despite its didacticism hmm. is like when we look at what makes this good, is it tied essentially to the lesson that it's trying to teach? Or hmm. Would this, I mean, I'm asking another question, but would this come down to the ending again then? Like if you had tied it up and it just became a story of romance, would it still be good? Yeah, sure. It'd still be good. But I guess my opinion is it wouldn't be as good because I like the ending having not, a clear resolution. I wanted it to be didactic um, mm. because it, I think it produces more thought. I guess mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think yeah. that answers your question all the way, but it's a really good question. I, I think that part of, when we get frustrated at art that is didactic, I don't think we get frustrated that the art is attempting to teach something. Mm -hmm. I think we get frustrated that the art is trying to teach us something in a way that is ham-handed, that is, that is done okay. without yeah. ability. So the lack subtlety. favorite, what's that? The lack subtlety. That lack subtlety. And I, and I think also that does that, um, trims off inconvenient aspects of human nature and reality. Mm -hmm. So my example is always going to be, Ayn Rand. Ayn Rand is an example of a writer who absolutely, with every fiber of her being, wants to teach something. And I think I would say Henrik Ibsen, the 19th century playwright, with every fiber of his being, wanted to teach something. 
The difference is that Ayn Rand made her characters into something like caricatures instead of characters. They are just representations of ideas. And the people who support her capitalistic ideas are good, noble, sexy, talented, and those who don't have weak chins and they don't dress well and they're sniveling. It's like, it's so absurd that her didacticism just becomes offensive because she has to do so much damage to human nature in order to make it resonate. Whereas Ibsen, Ibsen had a really strong conviction about the plight of women in Europe in the 19th century. And he used all of his artistic gifts to make that point as clear as he could. The difference between Ibsen and Rand is that Ibsen was not afraid to kind of make bad characters have redeeming qualities and wonderful characters have kind of like dark aspects to their characters. In other words, he told his tales truly even while he was teaching. And I think that Rand fails miserably at that. Hmm. Hey, we're, we're in a Q&A, so I, I, I want to get to a couple more of these, uh, these other questions yeah, here. Yeah, so yeah. I'm gonna, it's, it's abrupt, but I'm going to move us on to a couple other ones here. Um, Audra says, did you observe any internal character growth in the play? Eliza undergoes a dramatic external transformation from the experiment, but seems to be essentially unchanged inwardly. Same for her father. Well, Higgins seems completely unaltered. Wow, Higgins seems unaltered in any way. Thoughts? Question mark. Do you lack? Do you think lack of growth poses a lack of depth, or is that what makes the play interesting? And Tim, let me just add to this: Is this the kind of thing that will sometimes get levied against plays because we spend less time with an inner, like, like we get we don't get that inner monologue, we don't get that point of view of voice, we don't get to like spend time in a character's head, and then also just because you're limited on a stage time thing, like it's just it's it's a different experience to experience a play than it is a novel where you roll around in the head of the character and you and you and thus it makes the changes obvious. So what's the question again? Sorry. Is there any uh did you observe any internal character growth in the play, like in Eliza, for example? Everybody seems the same at the end, she's suggesting internally. I think Eliza changes the most and i think that higgins probably changes the least what do you agree jesse yeah i think she's like in her i'm not entirely sure what the question is either i think she mentioned that in her um question but i know eliza changes a little i would say she changes in maybe a more i don't know She's always been the same, rather strong and perhaps opinionated girl. But I think when she recognizes or learns how to speak properly, I think she's able to give voice, kind of like what we said last time. She's able to give voice to it, but she's always sort of been her own person, per se. Um, I think she, she does change a little bit. Um, but she knows more about what she needs or wants. I think, and I may be wrong in this. You have to help remember, but uh, Higgins does change a little bit, doesn't he? Like when they come, they're speaking together and she says, I'm out of here. And he, she finds her voice and says, this is uh, the way things are and I'm leaving. And he recognizes her voice like oh this is who i wanted after you know all along like someone who could be the battleship you know i don't know if that's a change or is just him like backtracking a little bit i don't know i don't know if i'd say he didn't change at all but seemingly a recognition of her and her who she is seems a little bit of a change in the beginning yeah I maybe have a really jaundiced view of Higgins, but I kind of think when he has that realization, when he's like, this is the woman that I always wanted from the beginning, I would be really tempted to play that as an actor as, um, oh my gosh, I'm going to lose her. I'm Mm -hmm. going to retroactively say, this is what I always wanted 
from her so that I get to keep her. So I have, that's part of the reason why I think that he changes the least because I kind of think, I don't think much of him. In other words, I don't think very highly mm-hmm. of, of him as a character. <laughs> he was switching tactics. Then. He was switching okay. tactics. Right. Yeah. Right. Because he realized what he was going to lose. And so he was like, I got to figure something out. What am I going to say? Oh, this is what I always wanted. Eh, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, my computer. Okay. Let's see here. My computer just froze. Here we go. Okay. Um, Elise has a question. It's a more lighthearted question. She says, who would you dream cast in a current production of this play? Let's say it's a movie production because that opens it up a lot more <laughs> to like TV actors who people know. I feel like you this don't... is a question yeah, for you. I, I agree. <laughs> I agree. I think this is a question for you. I, yeah. I'm interested well, to see what you would say. Well, it would it just, I don't know all the stage actors. So if it's a, you know, how how no, old is Higgins actors. supposed to be? Just whoever you... Well, how old is Higgins supposed 40s, to be? 40s, 50s? Okay. Um, yeah, 40s, 50s. So I would probably cast uh, David Tennant as Higgins. I think he would be... He he's, was in Doctor Who and a um, bunch of stuff <laughs> like that. Um, he's been detectives. He's been all kinds of things. He can do all the... the lane. He can be like a professor who's a little bit absurd <laughs> pretty well um i could definitely see that i can see david Tennant. i'm just thrilled that i know the actor that you're I mean, talking I, about <laughs> i would say for eliza like carrie mulligan would be amazing but she might be too old florence Pugh. it's gonna be probably florence Pugh because she's the best english actress there is right now and she'd be able to She'd be very funny at it too. She'd pull that off. That's probably what I would say. Florence Pugh and David Tennant would be my Emily Blunt. I feel like she, I thought is you she were too say old Blunt. though. I think I don't think. Oh no! I mean, Mrs. Patrick Campbell was like forty. If they look young, they can play young. Okay, okay. I was just thinking, does she need to be like twenty three? Yeah, I think younger would probably work better. But I think she'd do oh, a Emily job. Blunt would be Emily Blunt would be amazing. She, she's got. She does have a little bit of. a maybe a modern Audrey Hepburn look that maybe you wouldn't want to lean back into. Mm. Okay. So then she also asks, at least does, what are we to make of Hagen's love for Milton? Tim, what do you think of this? Part of being an educated upper-class Brit in the middle of the 20th century? Or mm, more than that. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Certainly more than that. I, Milton, in the popular imagination, Paradise Lost, I should say, in the popular imagination, has become all about how compelling Satan is, right? Mm -hmm. Satan kind of like takes over the show, and this was not his intent, not Milton's intent. So I think maybe if he's going to make an allusion to Milton, is he somehow making a reference to this kind of like Oh gosh, I don't know. Satanic drive that Higgins has—that seems overstating it. I don't think Higgins has got a like a satanic drive. So I don't know. I I'm, I can't help much with that question. Jesse, did you prepare for this one? No, I did see it though, and I was like, "That's an interesting question." I had no opinions on it whatsoever. That's interesting. I don't. Yeah, I don't. I mean. I'd have to really think about like what Milton was doing and trying to accomplish with blank verse and sonnets and like the different forms that he was using. And I don't think that, I don't think I have an answer to that one right now. That's better than what Tim was saying. Emily has a question here, Tim, you've mentioned the the idea of class. And so Emily jumps on that and says, what is Shaw saying about class and language and the connections between these two? And what does knowledge have to do with class and language? Do you have any thoughts on this? I'll, she she says more, but I want to just leave it there for you for now. The relationship between class and language. This is a play, obviously, that's a it's about language. I mean, it's about learning to speak properly. Speak, learning to speak good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> See, what's hard about this play, I mentioned this when we did the podcast, is that I feel sometimes that Shaw is so vitriolic about what's wrong everywhere 
that it's really hard to discern what do you want? What do you mm, want, what's he pointing towards? Like, what would make you happy? Mm. And I know that what would make him happy is a more benevolent structure to society that he sees coming through socialism. I mean, he's, an, he's overtly a socialist. Great. But this is one of those examples. Like, um, he's, he seems to dislike Higgins's project of basically coaching this poor woman up into an upper class of society because it equipped it equips her with all of these kind of shallow graces how to speak right how to dress like how to hold her hand just so at a party but is not equip her with what is needed deeply and internally to actually occupy a new place in society and it does not equip her financially um, to occupy a new place in society. So I have a really hard time with Shaw for this reason. He seems, I mean, Chesterton calls him a Puritan for a reason. Like everything is sort of off limits to Shaw. Everything is his only vision of sort of righteousness is just razor thin. And sometimes it's so razor thin that it actually just disappears. So I don't know what Shaw wants exactly. I don't know what the relationship is between um, pristine English and class. I don't know. And I don't know that Shaw actually knows. Mm-hmm. I think Shaw just is like, does not like the way that our over, uh, that the capitalist system makes haves and haves nots. He thinks, and he's right, that it's radically unjust. But what he poses as an alternative, other than broadly speaking, socialism, um, is to me pretty nebulous. Hmm. Well, okay. I think he was very, very much part. Oh, sorry. Do you need to keep going? No, no, no. Answer that. Okay. Wasn't he like the life force, if I remember yeah. this right, was really important to him as far as everyone can be better and achieve like great, be a great human at not great cost, but can be always be better. So if you think that he doesn't like the working class, middle class, high class, they all have huge problems and this is how they get out of them sort of. But then at the same time he was saying, well, and this is, it could be just as simple as the way you say a word, you know, which wasn't really as simple as that because then once Eliza learns to talk, you know, well, she hasn't had education. She doesn't come from any important families. So what, what is she going to do? She's not been trained. So it seems like he is saying, well, you just have to be a better person, but then you also struggle with, all right, once you achieve the things that seemingly make you better, you're right, still stuck. Right. You can't really get anywhere. Right. But, because this is part of my confusion with Shaw. And and it might just be because I'm not a Shaw scholar, but on the one hand, the life force is this internal drive, this drive to live, to exist, to experience. And it's internal within the individual but he spends so much time Mm. talking about external the externals of society as shaping forces and he seems Mm -hmm. to want to reform those and how those two things kind of integrate because someone now i'm going to go back to ayn rand and i'm going to and i'm going to say ayn rand is so focused on the individual and she's like if we just get like set individuals free then society will sort of figure it out because We've let these great artists, creators, um, builders, we've set them loose to do the kind of almost divine creation work that mm-hmm. they were supposed to do. So she's kind of solved the problem in that way. Social structures be damned. These are not important. Get out of the way of the great ones. And Shaw seems to say, he, in a strange way, he seems to say the same thing about Ayn, as Ayn Rand. It's this life force from within. Mm-hmm. Let like the singular people go and grow and develop and seek. But he has such an emphasis on um, the role that government and culture plays in shaping individuals that I kind of don't know where the life force ends and where the socialism begins. So there's so a question. Get rid of the classes and things. Yeah. Go ahead, David. Well, there's a question here from Karen who says this may be a time period thing, but if she acts like, sorry, if she speaks like a lady and has the basic manners of a lady, isn't that like putting pearls on a pig? She doesn't have any of the knowledge of a lady. 
unless the ladies of the day weren't taught the basics of education. How could she carry on a convincing conversation at a long dinner without the corresponding knowledge and the experiences of a lady? She said, it's a delightful play movie, but this has bogged me down. So then in what's your, she does say, of course, Higgins was a tad deficient in the manners department himself. But then is what you're saying is that is kind of the point that she can learn to Higgins can, can, can teach her to speak in a certain way and for a moment give off the appearances, but that that doesn't actually solve the problems that society has created. And that's the, like, so that she is getting bogged down by it is the correct. That's what you should be experiencing. I, I think so. I think so. Yeah. Remember what Higgins says over and over. There's only two subjects that you can talk about that Eliza is allowed to talk about weather and her health, you know, because if she goes into anywhere close to society or government or money, well, then everyone's going to see it immediately. She's not who she says she is. And Higgins is probably right. You know, that's the sad thing is he's probably right that if she gets into the deep end about Hungarian politics, it's over. She's going to be found out to be an imposter. And so, I mean, in a way, this is one of the things that I appreciate so much about this play. She is created. She's sort of given all of the superficial things that she needs to survive and thrive at a party. But she's, and she's exposed to all of these like higher things in, in culture and society and politics and music, et cetera, et cetera. But she's given none of the internal equipping to actually stay where she stay in that upper crust of society. Mm-hmm. The only mm. option she has is to get married. Right. In order to stay right. there. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of which, Emily has a comment here before a question that I'm going to direct to you, Jesse. She says, on the theme of love, I was struck by Higgins' dialogue with Eliza in Act 5 as mainly lacking love. Higgins is maddeningly able to clear his name of misconduct by asking Eliza whether or not he actively wronged Eliza. Eliza, of course, replies that he didn't do an act of wrong, but one thing he lacked, love. The question, am I my my brother's keeper, keeps coming to mind. Pickering excelled in owing man man no thing, but he failed in the exception, which is uh, everything love. And that made me so happy that Eliza chooses not to try to marry Higgins. How awful to be in a tit-for-tat relationship that isn't covered by love for one another. Okay, now here is the question she, uh, Emily directs this at in the, in the thread, directs it at, uh, at Heidi. But Jesse, you're, you're going to have to take this one. Go the on. Colonel, okay. the Professor, or Freddie, who's your pick? <laughs> Jesse just made kind of a grimacey face. <laughs> <laughs> Depends well, on who the actor is, right? To this personality, <laughs> do I go based off that? Because Freddie sounds utterly boring, but he does love her. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, first instinct is Colonel Pickering because he's me, like a medium, a modicum. It's because he's like he's not mediocre. Like he's like you know he's far older than she is, but he can take care of her. He cares for he cares for her. You know can provide for her and he's I think the only reason she can't go for Colonel Pickering is he's too old. He's like grandpa, you know? It's mm. my theory. So now I gotta think of grandpa actors. Yeah, I actually don't know how old he is, but I always assumed he was like well, he's I don't know. Quite successful. He's finished his successful business life. Oh yeah. He's well into retirement. <laughs> of course, you know, some people retire at thirty. Okay, so why don't we go ahead and transition now to to doing a table read. So here's what I want to do. In Act 4, midway through Act 4, so the Pickering goes off to bed, and it's Liza and Higgins left alone to, to argue. And why don't you two re, you know, revisit your roles as, uh, as Higgins and, and Liza, and Tim, you, you be Higgins, not Liza. And, uh, and then I will just take care of the stage directions uh, that show up in here that seem like they're they're essential. So it's going to be on the bottom of 75 if you're following along with us. Pickering has left and gone to bed. And then Higgins says, uh, put out the lights, Eliza, and tell Mrs. Pierce not to make coffee for me in the morning. I'll take tea. He goes out. And then it says this. Eliza tries to control herself and feel indifferent as she rises and walks to the hearth to switch off the lights. 
By the time she gets there, she is on the point of screaming. She sits down in Higgins' chair and holds on hard to the arms. Finally, she gives way and flings herself furiously on the floor, raging. What the devil have I done with my slippers? There are your slippers, and there. Take your slippers, and may you never have a day's luck with them. What on earth? What's the matter? Get up. Anything wrong? Nothing wrong with you. I've won your bet for you, haven't I? That's enough for you. I don't matter, I suppose. You won my bet. You, presumptuous insect. I won it. What did you throw those slippers at me for? Because I wanted to smash your face. I'd like to kill you, you selfish brute. Why didn't you leave me where you picked me out of? In the gutter. You think? God, it's all over, and that now you can throw me back again there, do you? The creature is nervous, after all. I scream. Yeah, Liza gives a suffocated scream of fury and instinctively darts her nails at his face. Ah, would you? Claws in, you cat. How dare you show your temper at me? Sit down and be quiet. Oh, what's to become of me? How the devil do I know what's to become of you? What does it matter what becomes of you? You don't care. I know you don't care. You wouldn't care if I was dead. I'm nothing to you. Not so much as them slippers. Those slippers. Those slippers. I didn't think it would make any difference now. Pause. Eliza, hopeless and crushed. Higgins, a little uneasy. Why have you begun going on like this? May I ask whether you complain of your treatment here? No. Has anyone behaved badly to you? Colonel Hip Pickering? Mrs. Pierce? Any of the servants? No. I presume you don't pretend that I have treated you badly? No. I'm glad to hear it. Perhaps you're tired after the strain of the day. Will you have a glass of champagne? No. Thank you. This has been coming on you for some days. I suppose it was natural for you to be anxious about the garden party, but that's all over now. There's nothing more to worry about. No, nothing more for you to worry about. Oh, God, I wish I was dead. Why, in heaven's name, why? Listen to me, Eliza. All this irritation is purely subjective. I don't understand. I'm too ignorant. It's only imagination. Low spirits and nothing else. No one's hurting you. Nothing's wrong. You go to bed like a good little girl and sleep it off. Have a little cry and say your prayers. That will make you comfortable. I heard your prayers. Thank God it's all over. Well, you don't thank God it's all over? You are now free and can do what you like. What am I fit for? What have you left me fit for? Where am I to go? What am I to do? What's to become of me? Oh, that's what's worrying you, is it? I shouldn't bother about that if I were you. I shouldn't imagine you won't have much difficulty in setting yourself somewhere or other, though I hadn't quite realized that you were going away. You might marry, you know. You see, Eliza, all men are not confirmed bachelors like me and the colonel. Most men are the marrying sort, poor devils. And you're not bad looking. It's quite a pleasant, it, it's quite a pleasant to look at you sometimes. Not now, of course, because you're crying and you look exactly as the very devil. But when you're all right and quite yourself, you're what I should call attractive. That is, to the people in the marrying line, you understand. You go to bed and have a nice rest and then get up and look at yourself in the glass and you won't feel so cheap. Eliza again looks at him, speechless and doesn't stir. The look is quite lost on him. He eats in his apple with a dreamy expression of happiness, as it is quite a good one. I dare say my mother could find some chap or other who would do very well for you. And We were above that at the corner of Tottenham Court Road. What do you mean? I sold flowers. I didn't sell myself. Now, you've made a lady of me. I'm not fit to sell anything else. I wish you had left me where you found me. Tosh, Eliza. Don't you insult human relations by dragging all this cant about buying and selling into it. You needn't marry the fellow if you don't like him. What else am I to do? 
Oh, lots of things. What about your old idea of a florist shop? Pickering could set you up in one. He's lots of money. <laughs> He'll have to pay for those togs that you've been wearing today. And that, with the hire of jewelry, will make a big hole in 200 pounds. Why, six months ago, you would have thought it the millennium to have a flower shop of your own. Come, you'll be all right. I must clear off the bed. I'm devilish sleepy. By the way, I came down for something. I forget what it was. Your slippers. Oh, yes, of course. You shied them at me. Before you go, sir. Hmm? Do my clothes belong to me or to Colonel Pickering? What the devil use would they be to Pickering? Well, he might want them for the next girl you pick up to experiment on. Is that the way you feel toward us? I don't want to hear anything more about it. All I want to know is whether anything belongs to me. My own clothes are burnt. But what does it matter? Why need you start bothering about that in the middle of the night? I want to know what I may take away with me. I don't want to be accused of stealing. Stealing? You shouldn't have said that, Eliza. It shows a want of feeling. I'm sorry. I'm only a common ignorant girl. And in my station, I have to be careful. There can't be any feelings between the like of you and the like of me. Please, will you tell me what belongs to me and what doesn't? You may take the whole damned house full, if you like. Except the jewels. They're hired. Will that satisfy you? Stop, please. Will you take these to your room and keep them safe? I don't want to run the risk of their being missing. Hand them over. If these belong to me instead of to the jeweler, I'd ram them down your ungrateful throat. <laughs> this ring isn't the jeweler's. It's the one you bought me in Brighton. I don't want it now. Higgins dashes the ring violently into the fireplace and turns on her so threateningly that she crouches over the piano with her hands over her face and exclaims, Don't you hit me! Hit you? You infamous creature! How dare you accuse me of such a thing? It is you who have hit me. You have wounded me to the heart. I'm glad. I've got a little of my own back anyhow. You have caused me to lose my temper? a thing that has hardly ever happened to me before. I prefer, say, I prefer to say nothing more tonight. I am going to bed. Well, you'd better leave a note for Mrs. Pierce about the coffee. She won't be told by me. Damn Mrs. Pierce, and damn the coffee, and damn you, and damn my own folly in having lavished my hard-earned knowledge and the treasure of my regard and intimacy on a heartless gutter snipe. He goes out with impressive decorum and spoils it by slamming the door savagely. Eliza goes down on her knees on the hearth rug to look for the ring. When she finds it, she considers for a moment what to do with it. Finally, she flings it down on the dessert stand and goes upstairs in a tearing rage. Okay, before we go, I want to ask one more question. This section raises the question of... Um, basically raises the question of, is she better off than when she first arrived? She says, I wish that you had left me where I was. And that does seem to be one of the crucial questions of the play. In the end, is Eliza better off for having been taught the things that she has been taught, for having been associated with Pickering and Higgins and Mrs. Pierce, or would she have been better off left where she was? How do you answer that question? How do you think this play is answering that question? Or is it one of those unanswerable questions? The, yeah, it is. Well, it's, you could say, oh, it's better for everyone if they're on an equal plane. Um, but take immediately taking away the boundaries that separate the classes just throws everything into a confusion at the time. And I think Eliza is recognizing that when she was in her own class that she grew up in and was used to, she accepted the boundaries that were put in place and never thought that, oh, one day I'll be a lady. I'm going to work towards, you know, it was more, I'm going to, you know, almost as I'm going to stay in my lane because this is where I belong and I'm happy here and I can work towards what I need to um, in my place. But now that she's been given a more open boundary, 
And then she realizes all the problems that come with it and all the things she's lacking. I'm lacking in education. I'm lacking this. I don't belong here. I don't fit in. It's become more of a chaos inside of her mind. I think mentally and emotionally, she's in a worse place than she was when she was on the street. Physically speaking, you know, she's been taken care of, um, fed and clothed, given people that, you know, care for her. So you could say, yeah, she's doing so much better, but she's not as happy because of the restraints that she now sees and feels more than she did when she was unaware, perhaps, that she could leave them. Yeah. She kind of now she knows what she can't have in a way. Mm -hmm. Whereas previously, when she was a flower girl, she didn't know what it felt like to have money and clothes and jewels. Yeah, I, I would kind of lean toward she's worse off now. But one of the things that's interesting is that the very last couple of lines of the play, she, she says something like, I don't know what you'll do without me now. And he'd been giving her all these tasks to do and all that. And so it's like, she has made herself indispensable in some way that even he doesn't like recognize that, that she has become a part of his life, his circumstances. And he doesn't appreciate what, what like she, a possibility has opened up this like inner turmoil for her, but she is also capable of so much more than he gives her credit for. And she has made herself indispensable in a way that he was not aware of. So the play doesn't like give us an answer on that, but it certainly drops that in there in the final, the final scene, which I find pretty interesting and complicating in a way, like it complicates the themes of what's going on. Of course, the nature of a play is, you know, it's, it's not giving us hundreds of pages of, of inner dialogue. And we got, you know, it's a hundred, you know, a 60 page play, right? Whatever. If you take out all the, maybe an 80 page mm -hmm. play, if you take out all the extra stuff. So it can only, can only do so much. And the last question I have for both of you then is for a story that truly could be as complicated, um, thematically as this and the inter, the relationships between these characters could be, could be extremely complicated. As someone said, this could be a novel. So then what does writing this as a play, like, allow him to do uh, like what are the strengths of plays that uh, maybe aren't there in a novel that make up for the limitations of not writing it as a novel I mean and this goes back to the earlier question but I, it, this might be a good chance for both of you to talk about like the power of the stage <laughs> or the power of like this this medium which we don't necessarily do on the show enough and, and is and is a very different experience you have to read it differently than than you do like you know Jane Eyre so I'm just curious about that perspective on this. Tim, do you have any thoughts on that? What I like about theater is that it's, um, this is the way that real life is. Like, I don't know, I don't hear Jesse's internal monologue. I don't hear David's internal monologue. Mm. I only hear your words and your actions, mm. you know, and that's what I have to go on. And same for you guys mm. as you evaluate me. And so what's great about theater is it really distills a story into very condensed action accompanied by words. But we, as the audience have to be so engaged to understand what these actions and words mean. Right. Mm -hmm. So is Higgins here in the scene we just read is, I think we know where Eliza is. Right. Like she's been done wrong and she's expressing that. And it's absolutely easy for us to understand. But Higgins maybe is a little bit more complicated. Is he feeling regret? And part of his wrath is that he's feeling regret? Or does he feel zero regret? And he is like, when he is like saying these terrible lines, don't you, you're making me feel bad about he's myself. He's like Michael Scott. <laughs> Yeah, right, right, right. And so you you have to attribute some sort of motive to him without really having everything that you need because we don't hear the internal dialogue from here. We have to kind of attribute some motive to him. And I, I love that. I love that about theater because I think it, it involves, we have to be so engaged in figuring out what motives are because they're not, we don't get the window into Higgins' mind. Mm. I think that's what makes this play, I mean, so brilliant. And I love the fact that, I mean, this play is, there's not a whole lot of action. And so how is Shaw going to bring 
the audience, you know, into the play? Like, how is he going to engage them? You know, there's no asides from the actors, you know, to the right. audience. So there has to be a lot of energy in, you know, the way they move on stage, their wit, and what Shaw is even bringing out in the play. I mean, he brings the the audience in right in the beginning and then ask, starts asking the questions, even from the beginning, it's Pygmalion. So you, the audience is automatically thinking the myth if they knew it, which I'm sure they did. And then, you know, it starts to become, a, oh, maybe it's a fairy tale. Mm. This is like Cinderella. And then it's, you know, maybe it's a romance. So they're automatically like engaging throughout the play, these different areas. And when you see a play anyway, versus reading a book, there's a little, if it's done well, and it's a good play, there's so much more energy there, more of a spark. And you, an audience can feel so much more engaged just by being physically present mm. with all the sounds, you know, it's more, you know, sounds and, mm-hmm. um, you know, what you're seeing with your eyes, it's more engaging that way. And I think that helps. I mean, when this play was written, he was writing it for, I think the, I mean, the theater going was such a event of the day. Everybody did it for entertainment, you know, the upper classes, especially they would go to see it, you know, in the evenings. And it was a great, probably a great way to present these issues to them than simply just novel. I mean, I know they read novels, but I think because that was such a thing of the time, good way to bring in those, the class that you want that could enforce that change perhaps. Mm. I, I just have to say something else that I love about theater is that um, when you read a novel, a really well done novel, you have strong feelings as the pl- as the as the mm-hmm. novel works on you. But it's working on you as an individual sitting in your room on your couch wherever you are. It's working on you alone. Whereas when you're at a play, you get to experience with a hundred. 200, 500 people together, mm-hmm. you experience this same kind of tidal shift of emotions and you walk out into the lobby afterwards and you're like, oh my gosh, can you believe what we just experienced together? And it's just like what we experienced together. You mm-hmm. were sitting a hundred feet away from me yeah. and we went through the same thing together. There's something really magical about that. For sure. Mm-hmm. Well, I know you need to go. So that seems like a, as good a time as any to to conclude this conversation. Hey, Jesse, thank you for, for coming on and doing these little yeah, thanks, table Jesse. reads. And no, this is so fun. Thank you. It's good bringing, to see you too. Bringing your interest uh, in theater yeah. as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, obviously, we hope Heidi feels better and she'll be back next week with us uh, because we're beginning um, Diary of a Country Priest. We're going to be the first two chapters, which means, Tim, I believe you are stepping stepping out for a little while here because uh, yep. you're Sean about to have some changes in. in your life. Sean's stepping in. He I'm about book. to have some changes in my life. So you're, this due date is when? Three weeks. Three August, weeks. You're uh, three weeks August, away. April 2. Yep. Could be less. Could be less than three weeks. Could be less. At this point, could be less. Point, could, be less. Could, be, could be any day. <laughs> so we're giving Jesse, Tim a little... Did your uh, first... I'm sorry. Did your first arrive early or late? Like early a little oh, bit really yeah like five days days before the due date a little bit yeah. five days sounds like a lot five days is like almost next week for us <laughs> 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 well anyway this is like such exciting news how's she doing she's great she's mm-hmm. um sleeping is not as easy as you would expect but otherwise she's doing great she feels really good I think she's ready to have the baby. Good. You know, there's other aspects that are starting to become uncomfortable, but she's great. Carl. Carl. We're really looking forward to Carl and or Carlina's arrival. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, this has been great. Um uh it was I was excited, very excited to reread Pygmalion, and it was really fun to do this with y'all. So thanks to everyone who sent in questions as well over on the Substack page. Uh as I said, we're gonna discuss the first two chapters of Diary of a Country Priest uh, next week. Uh, we also have the uh, Out of the Silent Planet series going on right now. The first three episodes on that book are all up over on the Substack for the subscribers. And the Q&A is, is going to be the next episode there. And then we dig into uh, uh, Paralandra, another P-book. <laughs> so uh, 
Although another P book is maybe like a phrase I shouldn't say. I don't know. Like my kids would have had a field day with that one. Um, uh, another book that begins with the letter P. <laughs> uh, well, with that, uh, for Heidi White, who we hope feels better for Jesse Turpin and for Tim McIntosh, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Till next time, happy reading. Happy reading.